Well, it is a, a good occasion always on the Lord's Day to come together to hear from God's Word. Um, we have a special blessing today, as I've mentioned already, of installing our third elder. And uh, I've even asked him to sit up front, even though he claims to be a back row Baptist. Usually when the preacher is preaching, you wonder if he's talking about you or to you. Well, in this sermon, I will be talking about him and to him quite a bit, but it's also for the whole congregation, for all of us, to see what we can learn from God's Word, how we can apply it, but particularly in the leadership of the church. What is a person, a man supposed to do when they're called to gospel ministry? We have a a real blessing of installing the third elder, and it's an important day in the life of our church. It's something that our church has been praying for, asking for. I think the last time we installed an elder was Joey over four years ago, and Frank was back in, we didn't even have a sound booth. It was a tiny little table running the old sound system, which was very difficult and uh, hard for him and all of us to figure out. And I don't think he had plans to be where he is today. We might plan our ways, but God directs our step. We're thankful to look at Luke chapter 9 today, if you want to turn there in your Bible. Luke chapter 9, we're going to look at 1 through 9. But before I read it to you, I just want to say after joining our church, Frank, after being discipled, after working in that old sound table, after being sent to seminary to learn theology, to struggle through Greek and Hebrew, to learn how to preach there, to, to, to suffer under me as an intern for two summers. It is a great joy to be able to preach this message today, to have such an occasion in our church. Luke 9, 1-9. I've entitled the message, The Marks of Gospel Ministry. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, once again, we call upon you to make your word known, to make your word go out and have an effect on our hearts. Today, we look to this passage to teach us what it means to be in gospel ministry. And I pray that we might all learn from it and that we might be blessed by it. In the name of Christ, amen. By the way, as I go into today's message, I'll be using the term elder and pastor interchangeably. They're used that way in the New Testament. They're used that way to describe the leaders of the church. Also, words like overseer. These men in the church are responsible to lead. And so, depending on gifting, depending on time, depending on what we've determined is best for our church, elders will serve in different responsibilities different places of ministry 
but they're all pastors. Elders are pastors. Pastors are elders, whether they're paid to teach and preach or not. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So not only are we blessed to bring on an elder pastor, but we're blessed to be able to pay him, at least part-time right now, to be able to spend more time and teaching, and preaching, and counseling, and training, and discipling. But let's look at what Jesus says that this man needs to have to be in gospel ministry, the marks of gospel ministry. Jesus is on his way to the cross. He hasn't yet turned to go to Jerusalem yet. That'll happen in chapter 9, verse 51. Look at verse 51 of chapter 9, when the days were approaching for his ascension. That's when Christ will go up to be with the Father after he's been resurrected. When the days were approaching for that, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. So he's been ministering in Galilee. He's been going around and teaching and preaching. Like in passages we read in Mark where he preaches in his hometown and they reject him. And eventually he will turn south and go down to Jerusalem. He will go to Jerusalem. He will ride in on a donkey. They will, of course hate him. The leaders will crucify him. They will kill him, but he will rise again. He will rise again on the third day as we have been singing about. Well, the days were approaching, but before he turns to Jerusalem, he wants to now tell these 12 apostles to go out, to preach, to really make a path for him as he goes to Jerusalem. And he doesn't go in a straight line. He goes from place to place, city to city, village to village, and there to go in front of him. They were to go and proclaim the message that the Messiah is coming. The gospel of the kingdom. And just like pastors and elders that are graduating from their training today, it's time to put into practice what they had learned under Jesus. This wasn't a time to sit back and enjoy the fact that you had the Messiah. Yes, we enjoy that. They enjoyed that. But there was work to be done. There was laborers needed for the vineyard. And so they had graduated from that training. Now they're being sent out. They're being sent out for a task. So this passage shows us here four marks of gospel ministry. The first one, number one, the commission into gospel ministry. Today, all men that are called into gospel ministry need to have both an internal desire and an external confirmation by the church. That's today's commission into gospel ministry. In 1 Timothy 3, 1, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Frank had a desire to learn, to study, and then to teach and proclaim. He had a desire to go into the ministry of being an elder in a church. But that alone is not enough. He needs God's people to confirm that. He needs God's people to confirm that. We did that a couple of weeks ago, with 100% of those who were polled saying that they agreed with the elders to appoint him and to hire him as a pastor here in the church. Well, in those days, there wasn't a church yet, but there was Christ. He was with his disciples. So all he had to do was tell them. All he had to do was commission them right there as they stood in front of him. Now, commission is an instruction. It's a command. 
It's a duty given to a person or a people. And much like the great commission that we all receive, Jesus will give later that, that whole commission to the church. He's officially charging here the 12 disciples to go out with a particular function, a particular office. He's saying, you men are appointed to gospel ministry. Go and proclaim the gospel. Go and proclaim the good news. This is not Jesus calling them to salvation. He's not calling them to be saved. He's already done that. He already called them to salvation earlier in the Gospel of Luke. We can also see that in Matthew and Mark and John's Gospel. He's not even calling them really here to serve as full-time ministers under him. He's already done that. Here, he's summoning them together, training them, and sending them out to preach and to heal the sick and to cast out demons. But before that, he must give them something. It says he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Since Jesus had entered Galilee, he had been training them to be his apostles. Apostles means sent ones. It means the message of the gospel being sent out through a person, through a man. They saw that Jesus was anointed by the Spirit. They had seen the Spirit come down upon Christ at his baptism. They had been there from the very beginning. They had witnessed the miracles that Christ had done. And these signs and wonders were to affirm his message. They were to affirm that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. And of course, not only did they believe, but others as well. Now it's time for the disciples to put what they had learned into practice, to put what they had seen into practice, to go out and tell others about this Messiah. And so he gives them power and authority. Power is the ability, ability to accomplish a task, and authority is the right to do it. They both have the ability that Christ gave them and the right to do it. Jesus had begun his ministry with the crowds being amazed at his authority and power. The first time he cast out a demon from a man in Galilee in Luke 4.36, it says, An amazement came upon the whole crowd. They began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He is still all these things, and he was fully indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do these things. He had the authority. He had the right to do these things. And now he's given that to the twelve. He's giving them the ability to go and do miraculous things. They can proclaim the gospel. Yes, but the signs back then showed people that this was a true message by God. In fact, that was the whole point of signs and wonders and miracles. It wasn't to show off. It wasn't to sort of get attention, to provide entertainment. But it was to attract people to the message so they could hear the gospel, so they could be saved. Frank, Christ has given you all the power and authority that you need to proclaim the gospel. He's given you all things that you need in the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. If he's called you to do it, he's given you the power to do it. He's given you the authority to do it. 
And you just need to look to his word as you proclaim the gospel, as you go out, preach, teach, and counsel. No, you're not to cast out demons. It doesn't say that later in the epistles. After the apostles and and the early church prophets, uh, there's just the message to preach and teach the word of God. But when you do that, you can set people free from the power of Satan, from the power of demons, from whatever is chaining them to their sin. We don't need to go out and perform signs and miracles and wonder because we have the word of God. We have all that we need. The man of God, the pastor, the elder, may be adequate, equipped for every good work through the word of God. And it says in Luke 9, 2, that he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. That's their whole task, really, right there. Preach and heal. Preach and heal. Healing includes both making people well from the disease that they had, or raising them from the dead even, or casting out demons. And Matthew, he just says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. These were part of their gospel ministry. As I said, they're no longer present in the Great Commission to the church. He didn't tell us to do that. He didn't say, go out to all the world and perform these wonders. But he said, go out and make disciples. Then he said to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then teach them. Teach them. Much of your ministry is teaching already. And in the future, it's only going to grow, Lord willing. Teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. Well, we don't need miracles and wonders today, as I said, because we have the word. The word that's more sure. The word that we can look at and see the miracles of Christ. 2 Peter 1.19. We have the prophetic word made more sure, to, to which you do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. This is the message of sola scriptura, by scripture alone. You don't need to go to the world and, and see what they think the gospel is. You don't even need to go to men to see what the gospel is. It is revealed in scripture and by scripture alone. So I encourage you to look to that. I know you love the Word. I know you study the Word. You, you read the Word and do even more so in your ministry. Make it a regular part of your life. Make it something that you dive into every day. Not just for ministry purposes, but we should all be studying and reading the Word for our own hearts, our own souls, our own life. Want to be more like Christ? Then read His Word. Why? Well, in your case, so you can preach and teach it. That's exactly the ministry of Jesus as well. Go to Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. Luke four eighteen. What did Jesus come to do? He came to die on the cross, yes. He came to, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, yes. But he came to preach the good news. Luke four eighteen. Here's his mission given to us in the Old Testament by Isaiah. He found the place in the scroll of Isaiah where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was a preacher. 
God only had one son and he made him a preacher. Yes, he would go to the cross and die. He would be our sacrifice. He would be our eternal sacrifice. Yes, before that, he preached the good news of what was going to happen when he died on the cross. And after that, he told his apostles, preach the good news. Preach the gospel. Preach the fact that Christ died on the cross for sinners. I just saw the video, uh, American Gospel, the new one, number two. And there were people mocking Jesus, saying that he preached the gospel before he even died. How could he preach the gospel before the cross? Well, I got news for those liberals on that documentary. The gospel was preached from Genesis 3 all the way up till Christ came into the world. It's been there in the Bible. The gospel is just the good news that God can save sinners. How is that accomplished? By the work on the cross. But people were saved before the cross because they looked forward. They trusted in the promises of God. They looked forward to salvation through faith alone in the Messiah alone. So he gives these 12 a very specific task. Just like he had been given by his father to go and preach and proclaim the good news, he gives it to them. The verb here in Luke 9, 2 is keruso. It means to make a public declaration, to proclaim aloud, like a town crier who takes the king's message and yells it in the streets for everyone to hear. But what are they to preach? What does Jesus tell them to preach in Luke 9? The kingdom of God. Preach the kingdom of God. In 10.7, he'll say, preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Mark just records that they went out and called people to repent. We read that in our scripture reading today. That is the message of the kingdom of God. That God's kingdom is coming through the Messiah. And right now, while there's time, you need to repent and believe. That's what they were to preach. He never talked about establishing our kingdom on earth. He didn't tell Christians, go ahead and set up the kingdom now for me. He didn't tell Christians to build it. He said he would bring it in. He said he would do the work to bring in the kingdom. That's the message we're proclaiming. How do you get into the kingdom? As Christians, we're only told in Scripture to pray for the kingdom, to wait for the kingdom, to enter into the kingdom, to seek the kingdom, to receive the kingdom, to inherit the kingdom, and to declare that it is coming. So Frank, as a thread throughout all of your teaching and preaching and counseling and discipleship and all the ministry you do, should be this message the gospel of the kingdom. You've got to tell people the gospel. You've got to teach them and preach to them the gospel. You've got to tell them, first of all, who God is. Who is God? He's our creator. He's perfectly holy. He's perfectly sovereign. You've got to tell them that God has commanded us to follow his laws because we're his creation. But you've got to tell them also the bad news, that we're sinful, that all mankind is sinful, that We desire what's in our hearts. And since Adam, we desire sin. And we desire selfish things. And we desire lusts of the flesh. And that we can't obey God. That our hearts are corrupt. That man is totally depraved. That without God changing our hearts, we're doomed. Because we cannot please God, the Bible says. And then you've got to bring them the good news. You've got to tell them that Christ, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, born into the world, fully God, fully man, came to save sinners. He came to save those of us who could not earn our salvation, which is all of us. All of us can't earn our salvation. 
And Jesus says he's come for the poor. He's not talking about just people who don't have much money. He's saying the poor in spirit. Those who are oppressed, oppressed not only by others, but by the sin in their heart, the sin in their lives. We've got to tell them that he is the perfect Savior, that he lived three years in his ministry perfectly, but his whole life up until his mid-30s was a perfect life before God the Father. He never sinned. He never broke any laws. He died upon that cross and took the place of sinners. That's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? Isn't that the message that you love, the heart of the gospel? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him to be sin on our behalf. Not that he ever sinned, but he took the worst of us, our sin, and we got the best of him, his righteousness. That's what happened on the cross. And you say, well, I wasn't there. No, you weren't, but he was. He was, and he did that work. And anybody who trusts in Christ alone as Savior will receive that transaction. God, the Father, made him to be sin on our behalf. He took our sin away, if we have faith in Christ, if we repent of our sin, and he gives us Christ's righteousness. That perfect life that he lived that we couldn't gets transferred to our account. That's the gospel message. You've got to tell them, Frank, you've got to tell them that they should respond. They can't just take that in theologically. They can't just get those points of the gospel and say, yeah, that sounds great. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Bible. You've got to tell them to respond in faith. You've got to tell them to repent of their sins, like John the Baptist did, who lost his head for it. Or in a day and age where that message is not popular, in a day and age where preaching the word is definitely out of season, it doesn't matter. You've got to preach the word in season and out of season. Whether this church loves to hear the word or doesn't love to hear the word, you're called to always preach and teach the word. Our world doesn't like it. But what other message is there? What other message is there that saves? There's not. So Paul tells Timothy, preach the word in season, out of season. Use it to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Jesus did not have uh, to use men to proclaim the gospel. God could have designed it so that he did all the work himself. But he chose men to go out and be messengers, to be leaders in the church and proclaim the gospel. That's all part one, by the way. But the next ones will go quicker. Part two. So you have to be commissioned. We spend a lot of time. What does it mean to be commissioned? What does it mean that you have the power and ability to do that, Frank? But also number two, the instructions for gospel ministry. Whenever Christ appoints somebody for ministry, he gives clear instructions. To them, he gave a specific set of instructions we'll look at briefly. Later, he'll change that for them as he's going to ascend and be with the Father again. And then later, the apostles will deliver to the church throughout the rest of the church age, they will deliver to us instructions for ministry in the church. First of all, he says, travel light. Travel light. And this principle still even applies to us. We've got to travel light in this life. Take nothing for your journey. Neither staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not even have two tunics apiece. Later, he'll say that they're doing this in Matthew 10, 10, for the worker is worthy of his support. The point is that God will provide. Jesus is telling them that God will provide. Later, when he ascends, he'll tell them to take a few things. But still, the principle is the same, that God's people will provide for those who are proclaiming the word, for those who are dedicating 
a majority of their week for study, for teaching, for preaching, for counseling. Also, he says, stay in one place. Verse 4, whatever house you can enter, stay there until you leave that city. Don't be moving around. Don't try to get the best house to live in, the best living arrangements, the best wealthiest place to stay in town. In the ancient world, philosophers would do this. They would go from place to place, finding the best location to stay in each town. We can apply that today, even to ministry. These churches that have a new pastor every year, that have a new staff every year, that have new elders coming and going all the time. Get in a place and stay there. Plant yourself there. If God takes you from there someday, so be it. But stay where you're planted. Verse 5, And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. He's saying, Tell them that if they reject the gospel, there's consequences. There's consequences. Why would people not receive the apostles of Christ? Why wouldn't they? Sin. That's the only reason people today don't receive Christ. Sin. I've already got my method of salvation figured out. Don't come telling me something new. Don't come proclaiming a new message. I don't want to hear the good news. I've got the good news figured out. The self-righteous, Jesus calls them. The gospel will force a choice. There's only two choices, believe or reject. Believe or reject. You've seen this. You'll see this even more in your ministry, Frank. And Jesus is saying, shake the dust off your feet. It's a symbol of judgment. It's a symbol of judgment. He says in Matthew 10, 15, Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. A city of people who reject Christ will be punished in eternity, in hell. We're not called to stay and try to convince them. He doesn't say if they reject your message, you need to stay and convince them. You need to entertain them. You need to tell them what they want. We're not called to do that. We're not called to give people what they want, but to tell them the truth, the truth of the Bible, the truth of the Word of God. As I said, these were instructions that he gave to the first missionaries, the twelve. Later, he'll tell them to go ahead and take the things that he said not to take when he was with them. And then later in the epistles, we are given new instructions. Instructions for elders in the church. When the apostles are going off the scene, they're passing the leadership to the elders in each local church. And so we see from their writings that there are four main things. So if we were to say, what are the instructions today for, for Frank, for myself, for Joey, what are they? First of all, to pray. To pray, to, to give this application today, I would say number one is pray. The apostles and elders were devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word in Acts. James 5.14 says, call for the elders to pray. We're to pray for the flock. We're to pray for each believer. Secondly, we're to lead. We're to lead. These are the overseer passages in the Bible. To oversee, to govern well, to be a good steward. Acts 20, 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Of course, there's leadership tasks. There's administrative stuff. There's decisions about where to spend money, budget, things like that. But leading means that you're an overseer. As an elder, you're an overseer for God's little flock here. And every decision you make 
as an elder is important. And every decision you, decision you make has to be in line with what God has called us to do. As part of that leading, we're to train up other men, to train up future leaders. And we do that here. And I know you're looking forward to doing that more and more as we go. Frank loves to disciple men, by the way. He loves to disciple men. 2 Timothy 2.2, the things which you, this is Paul writing to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.2, the things which you, Timothy, have heard from me, Paul, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men. That's the third generation who will be able to teach others also. Four generations there, Paul's saying. Remember, Timothy, what I taught you and entrust that to another group who will in the future entrust it to another group and another group and another group. Fast forward 2,000 years and we get to where we're at today. You have to lead. The third instruction that the epistles give us is to shepherd. Yes, it goes in with leading as well. But this is a different word here in the Greek. To shepherd means to lead the flock, to care for the flock, to feed the flock, to water the flock. It's just a general word for taking care of God's church. It means making disciples, training disciples. It means church discipline, doing church discipline. It means leading by example. A shepherd leads by example. The sheep don't want to follow the shepherd, but when he takes off and calls them, they go after him. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. You've got to lead a godly life. That's why 1 Timothy 3 goes through all those words of describing an elder's life. You've got to be an example. Something that those in this church and men in this church can look to and say, there's a godly man. There's a man who loves the word, who loves the Lord, and is a good example for the flock. And then lastly, teach. Most of us already know this, but an elder is called to teach in some way, in some ministry, in some fashion. Some will teach more than others. But that's a requirement to be an elder. Titus 1.9, exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. He's talking about elders. 1 Timothy 3.2, be able to teach. You've got to have the gift. And I think you do. We think you do. We've seen it. You've preached from this pulpit. You've taught classes. You've counseled, you've discipled, you've taught in various ways. Well, Frank, these are the job descriptions. You're not being called to cast out demons. You're not being called to leave everything behind and go live in a cave. But you are being called to do these four things that came about after Christ had ascended that he told elders to do. Thirdly, back in Luke 9, he tells us the results of gospel ministry. Notice only one verse for the results. Verse 6, departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Throughout the villages, literally from village to village. Every village in Galilee heard the gospel. Now they were only going to the Jews on this trip. 
In Matthew, he says, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter into any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Later, they would be called in Acts 1 to expand out from Jerusalem, and they would go out to the other parts of the earth, Judea, Samaria, even the remotest parts of the earth. At this point, Jesus has restricted their ministry. Now we have a ministry where we're called to proclaim the gospel to everyone. But notice in verse 6, there's no numbers reported. How do we know if this ministry was successful? It doesn't say how many people believe. It doesn't say how many people were baptized. It doesn't say how many people were ready to join the church when it would come in Acts 2. Today we hear all about numbers in ministry. 2,000 people were saved yesterday. 3,000 people were saved today. 3,000 were baptized. 10,000 people attended services this week. In America, we're consumed with numbers, as if that measures success. And this boasting can be quite ridiculous these days. But these men that Jesus sent out, they just preached. They just proclaimed the gospel. We don't even know how many believed. Because God said he would do the work. In the parable of the sower, the sower just sows the seed. He has no effect on whether things grow. That's the soil, and that's God's department. He just throws out the seed. And they just went from village to village and preached the gospel everywhere. That's what we're doing. Yes, we're doing it everywhere in our community, but we're also doing it here in this body. Preach, proclaim. And don't measure your ministry by the numbers, even by successes. That can be frustrating. You do a few counseling cases and you realize that it can be frustrating if you're trying to, to measure your ministry by that kind of thing. John MacArthur says, Early in my ministry, I committed before the Lord that I would simply worry about the depth of my ministry. And I would let Him, God, take care of the breadth of it. Worry about how deep you go into the Word. Don't worry, as in be anxious, but be concerned about that. Not how many people respond the way you want them to, or how many numbers come into the church as a result of that. The apostles did what Christ told them to do. They, they didn't come up with some new method to try and get people into the church, to try and entertain them. Steve Lawson says, as church leaders, we're not free to do ministry however we like. If it is to be blessed, it is to even be called Christian, it must be done according to the word of God. We're not free to invent new ways to do ministry. And you know this as a member here, as an intern here, as a new elder here. Men who are called to the ministry of the word are called to preach the word of God. To teach the word of God. Plain and simple. That's your message. We're not here to entertain. We're not here to pack in the numbers. Although we've been growing a lot lately. We've been running out of chairs. But we're not called to do that. And I like this quote from William Still. He was a pastor in Scotland for 52 years. And he said, if you think that you're called to keep a largely worldly organization, misnamed a church, if you're called to keep that going with infinitesimal doses of innocuous sub-Christian drugs or stimulants, then the only help I can give you is to advise you to give up the hope of the ministry. He's talking about just entertaining people to make them feel good. To give it up and go and be a street scavenger. Uh, in Scotland, I think that's a person who cleans the streets. 
a far healthier and more godly job, keeping the streets tidy than cluttering the church with a lot of worldly claptrap and the delusion that you are doing a job for God. The pastor's called to feed the sheep. Pastor is an elder, elder is a pastor. You're called to feed the sheep in every ministry you're a part of. The pastor is called to feed the sheep, even if the sheep do not want to be fed. He is certainly not to become an entertainer of goats. Let goats entertain goats and let them do it out in goat land. You will certainly not turn goats into sheep by pandering to their goatishness. Do we really believe that the word of God by his spirit changes as well as maddens men, makes them angry? If we do, to be evangelists and pastors, feeders of sheep, we must be men of the word of God. If you're faithful to the preaching of the word and teaching of the word and counseling from the word and all the things you do in ministry from the word and based on the word, then God will bless it. God will bless it. Maybe not the way you want it to be. Maybe not the way I want it to be or Joey wants it to be, but God will bless it. Things will happen that you never imagined would happen. God says in Isaiah 55, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So that brings us to the last one. Number four, the rejection of gospel ministry. We've already hinted at it. We've already talked about it. But some people are going to reject your message. They're going to reject your teaching. They're going to maybe even make trouble for you because of the message that you teach. Verse 7, Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. This is Herod, the, the son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, who had tried to kill Jesus. His father had tried to kill Jesus as a toddler. And he now ruled over not the whole area that his father did, but a, about a fourth of it. So he's called a Tetrarch, a fourth of it. And Jesus was preaching in his region. So he ruled over Galilee under authority of the Roman government. And John the Baptist had been preaching in his area and Herod captured him and he had him beheaded. Why? Because of the message that he preached. John preached a message that angered Herod and angered his wife. He had an incestuous relationship with his wife. His wife wanted John killed. And Herod beheaded him. He had killed John the Baptist. The most famous preacher before Jesus. And that day was John the Baptist. Why? Because he was preaching the good news. John was preaching the good news that that the Messiah is coming. Make way for the Lord. Clear the path. Repent now or you're going to be burned up with fire when judgment comes. They may reject our message. They may hurt us. They may kill us. They may not let us meet as a church like they're doing right now in California. But it is God, really, that they hate. The world doesn't like the gospel. They hate the gospel because they hate God. They hate his message. They hate him. It's not us necessarily. We've got to make sure we're not adding anything to make the world hate us. But someone who rejects Christ is rejecting God. They're not rejecting us. And this message that these 12 took out was everywhere. They were hearing not about the apostles. What was, were they hearing about? This man. This Jesus. This gospel. And it confused him because 
he thought he had killed this famous preacher. How is this message getting out? Verse 8, some thought it was Elijah. So he's hearing that maybe it's Elijah coming back from the dead, the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament. Others thought one of the prophets of old had risen again. But Jesus is neither John the Baptist, nor Elijah, nor one of the prophets. He is the Savior, the King of the world, the Messiah. Greater than all of that. And that would have scared Herod so much so that he would have done anything to make sure Jesus was killed. So he says in verse 9, I myself had John beheaded. Who is this man about whom I hear such things? If you read through the Gospel of Luke, everyone's always asking, who is this? Who is this man that I've heard of? The scribes and the Pharisees in 521, who is this man who even forgives sins? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The Pharisees in 749, who is this man who even forgives sins? His own disciples in 825, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? When you start proclaiming the truth to people and they don't want to hear it, make sure they're looking at Christ. Make sure you're proclaiming Christ. But it's not up to you. God gives the increase. God changes hearts. And no matter what Jesus did, it wouldn't have mattered because Herod was against him. He's not at all concerned about the message. Rather, He's concerned about power, authority. Who has the power to spread a message like this in my kingdom? And he kept trying to see him. He's not wanting to see Jesus to hear the gospel. He will see Jesus later. We don't have to wonder what he would have done if he met Jesus. He met Jesus later in Luke 23, and he mocked Jesus, and he had his soldiers beat Jesus, and he sent Jesus back to die under the Roman government. Warren Wearsby says, Herod kept trying to see Jesus. But Jesus, unlike some modern religious celebrities, did not make it a point to go out of his way to mingle with the high and the mighty. There will be times when people will want you to come and be with them because they're wealthy or to come and spend time with them because they have power and influence. And they want to even ask where you get your power and influence from. The only place to point them is Christ. The only place to show them where power truly comes from is the gospel, power of forgiveness. The point here is that even when there is success in ministry, others are going to reject it. Others are going to push back against it. Others are going to hate the message. But that's okay, because that's what God is designed to do. It's a sword. It's a hammer. It's a fire. And not everybody likes those things. Spurgeon, famous preacher, said, The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. There's going to be those who reject your teaching. You've seen it already. You've sat beside me as somebody wanted to change the gospel we preached here. And you defended the truth. You defended the gospel. And rightly so. When hard times come, when difficult times come in ministry, which they always do, if you're going to lead, if you're going to be an elder in the church, remember, remember your calling to ministry. Remember what Christ has given you to do. Look back to that calling and remember that you are called by Christ to preach, to teach, to counsel, to do all the things that an elder pastor should do. So we charge you with this. We have the whole congregation to witness what I've charged you with here today and to hold you accountable as they do me, as they do Joey. We're going to ask you now, Frank, to come up. We're going to lay hands on you. 
and uh, formally install you as an elder. We're going to pray for you. So come on up right here.